Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with writer, comedian and producer of TV comedy drama, Izzy Mant. It was a fascinating conversation about Izzy's stand-up and script writing, as well as her work on TV shows including Peep Show and The Windsors. You can learn more about Izzy at her website, izzymant.com, and you can find me, see the projects I'm working on and hear some of my music at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lay Music. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as doing that helps more people to discover it in the future. It would also be lovely if you could share it on social media and just let anyone who you think would be interested know about the podcast. Thank you. Okay, here's my conversation with Izzy Mant. Hi Izzy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you Robert, how are you? Yeah, I'm alright, thank you. Where am I talking to you from? Where are you actually based at the moment? I'm in my flat in Arsenal. Um, you might even be able to hear the sound of a match in the background. We've timed this very well. So <laughs> yeah, right if there's a goal, off. you'll hear it. <laughs> Good. Well, at least it's nice to be informed about these things, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> are you London-based originally or you're from elsewhere? Originally, originally London, yeah. Um, but then when I was five, we moved to Brighton and that's where I did my growing up. So that's why I'm so, you know, bohemian and chill kind of uh, beach girl. Yes, I thought that yeah. might be the reason. I thought she looks like she must be from Brighton. I'm going to just <laughs> buy that there. Okay, that's cool. And how long have you been in London for this time around then? Uh, I mean, something like 20 years. Wow. A long time, yeah. And was yeah. this, I mean, couldn't possibly be that you were working in this industry that long ago, but is that a work-based thing or was it for something else? Um, I've worked in a number of industries. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't been working in... TV this long but um uh but yeah creative industries this long so I started off trying to be a theatre director uh did that for a bit went into radio I mean we'll probably get into all this uh, but but yeah a good a good 20 years or so but it's just interesting to me then and I wonder how much this has changed as well is being in London an important part of being involved in all those industries that you mentioned? I mean, Brighton's a very creative city. I think there's quite a scene there, certainly for for theatre and comedy. But is being based in London, does that make a big difference? Do you know, I can't really compare um, my experience with not being in London because I've I've been in London the whole time. I've been trying to do these things. <laughs> so um, I know that, you know, there are other creative hubs. Like Bristol is um, is becoming a very creative place. I've done work outside of London Hmm. um but it's tended to be um you know because we're shooting something their production is based there it's not been a case of me being live you know me living there and then applying for a job from there so um yeah I I can't really compare because I've always been London based since I've been a grown-up cool okay um and tell me then how have the sort of events of the last uh, you know, I want to say year, but it's more like two years now, isn't it? Getting there, 18 months more. How has that affected the industry? And it, it sort of felt from talking to people that there was a massive change all through last year and then things got a bit back to normal. How more normal are things now and or not? And, and do we feel like they're getting better or do we think they could change again at any moment? 
Uh, it depends which of my various industries that I'm involved in you're talking about. Um, I mean, if you talk about television first, um, it's very much not normal in the sense, I mean, it's normal in the sense that things are being made. Yeah. Uh, but it's not normal because of the after effects of nothing being made, pretty much nothing being made for a, at least a year. Um, there's been a huge backlog of you know, great projects that have been on ice for a while. And uh, yeah, I mean, what I hear, I'm not really a producer anymore. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've managed to escape this period. But um, what I'm hearing is, you know, it's impossible to get crew. Mm. Uh, because everyone's being booked for overlapping, you know, three jobs at once. Um, it's impossible to get cast. I mean, it's a great time for crew and for actors and for, for the people who are being hired for those shows um, because it's just a lot of stuff being made. But then again, I mean, I say that it can be quite depressing, I think, sometimes as a freelancer when you hear about these uh, times when apparently loads of stuff's being made because it doesn't always correspond to when you're getting work personally. <laughs> and I know I've had times in the past as a, as a freelance producer when people have said to me, oh, it's so slow at the moment, isn't it? And I feel guilty because I've just got a couple of gigs back to back. And then there are other times when people say, oh, God, it's mad, isn't it? You know, I bet you're being booked for everything. And I'm oh, no, I haven't worked for a few months. You know, so it, it doesn't always correspond to an individual's experience. But what I'm hearing generally is that there is a lot being made at the moment. And that's obviously a great thing in some ways, but it's also, you know, it means that there's a bit of chaos and cutting corners. And mm. I mean, you look at what happened on, I probably shouldn't get into it because it's not, a, you know, it's a big thing that I probably shouldn't comment on, but on the set of Rust, there's obviously a lot of things that went wrong yeah. there in all sorts of different ways, but I can't help thinking that this period of time we're in where everything's a bit chaotic and everyone's playing catch up and people are being, people are unable to hire experienced people. So they're saying, well, we'll go down the line and see, you know, who we can get for cheaper, you know, or who's just available um, and things are being done too quickly. Yeah, and maybe I don't know if there's a rush to get stuff done because we we need stuff and we're behind, or whether because we've got to focus on all these new things that we ha now have to think about some of the other stuff we maybe take for granted or just sort of not thinking about it in the way that we might have done before. Yeah, and I think it's I think we're in a transitional period, and I think it's sort of too soon to say what the long term effects of coming out of this this weird time is mm. going to be. Um, I mean, from a creative point of view, in terms of drama and comedy, a lot of people are talking about to what extent should we represent what's just happened yeah. in the work that we make? Do we imagine that we're in a world where COVID never happened? You know, if, if we're setting things now or in the future, do we just forget about it or do we acknowledge it? Um, and I don't think anyone's got a definitive answer to that question it's the same thing in comedy as a comedian i mean i've i've not been gigging mm. really at all throughout the pandemic but i've just started again kind of doing a few gigs and getting getting back into it um and it's what all the comedians are talking about is sort of I've, you know, I've got some stuff about about lockdown but is it just boring for everyone and does everyone want a bit of escapism and just to talk about human nature and you know the, the sort of bigger topics that we used to talk about 
Yeah, it's really interesting, that, isn't it? And like you say, I don't think anyone's quite sorted that one. I, I've, I've spoken to a few people for this earlier in the year who are involved in drama, so like directors and writers of TV drama, continuing drama. It's like, well, that's really hard because they're shooting six months ahead, but they're supposed to be reflecting the world. Well, how do you know what's going to be happening six months' time? It's quite interesting. Some of them make the decision, oh, we'll just sort of say we're two years in the future now. So it's we can reference COVID, but we don't have to go through it. It's like, well, that might look silly in two years. It's, it's really difficult, isn't it? Um, but yeah, you raise an interesting question about, I suppose, without getting too deep about it, what this stuff is actually for. Are we reflecting real life? Are we? Is it a cathartic thing for people, or do we want to provide escapism? And I guess that's a particular challenge with comedy, isn't it? Like, it is entertainment and it's escapism, but the best stuff's got to reflect what people are going through as well, hasn't it? I guess. Yeah, I think what I've been trying to gauge is the extent to which, right now, people are people are still going through a cathartic process and mm. thinking about what's happening and well what's still happening let's be honest it's it's not over um and all i could do really is sort of apply a, a slightly scientific method to it like we comedians often do where you just test stuff out and you see and you let the audience tell you and i think it's probably different for different people depending on what kind of comedian they are and what sort of audience they speak to but my experience there were there's a whole bunch of new stuff that I'd written in my notebook over the last 18 months that I thought, oh, maybe there's a bit in this, maybe this is funny. Um, and I polished it up um, and you know, tried it out at a couple of gigs. And I would say about half of it was pandemic related or lockdown yeah. related. And about half of it was just general funny stuff that had occurred to me that could have occurred to me at any time. And um, for me personally, the stuff that got laughs was the general stuff that didn't reference COVID at all. And that was interesting. I was surprised. I thought it might be the other way around. I thought people might feel it was, you know, talking about other things was irrelevant. But for me, they preferred that. But everyone's different. With the, you know, people like different things from different people. Yeah, exactly. Is this preparing for a completely new show or would you be looking back at Polite Club, which was the show? Was that 2019, I think? 2019, yeah. Because yeah. I, in... I could sort of see a, a crossover with Polite Club into COVID and how polite or not people are <laughs> with the restrictions and that sort of stuff and just the way that different people approach it as well or is that show, is that put to bed now or would you return to it? Uh, I'm returning to it in other ways. I mean, I, I hope I will do the show again mm. because it, it felt like it was going to have a life after the Edinburgh Fringe because it did very well, it sold out. There were people who wanted to see it who didn't get to see it and I was going to return in 2020 oh. and do a few nights of it as a little comeback in a larger space. Uh, obviously that didn't happen. Um, but I, I'm sort of using that, my observations on that theme in different ways. So um, one of the things I'm doing is uh, writing, potentially writing a book about politeness, a sort of funny, but, uh, but academic book about right. politeness. Um which is obviously, I wouldn't have even had that idea if it wasn't for doing the show. I feel like I'm kind of accidentally becoming an expert on politeness. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I will do the show again. I mean, if I if I end up writing this whole book, then and if it gets published, then doing the show would be quite a good way to publicise that. Yeah, book, that would be great. So. And was the book project something that happened because of last year or was it something that might have happened anyway? Was there like, I've spoken to people who had time to do a project like that because they weren't out gigging and doing the other stuff. A bit of both. I mean, the impetus for it uh, 
well, it was an agent who suggested to me that I should try mm. writing a book, and that happened before the pandemic. So that was something that happened anyway. But I definitely got it, got my sample chapter written a lot quicker than I would have. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Okay, you mentioned that the, you're not doing any producing at the moment, but I thought if we could talk about that a little bit and then come yeah. on to other stuff. And I think it'd be really handy for some people who might listen in to just sort of demystify a bit what a producer actually does on a TV comedy show. Could you explain that for us a bit? Yeah, it differs a lot between producers. Producers come from such different backgrounds. Some come from more of a production management or first AD, that sort of side of things. Then there are other producers like me who come more from being very script orientated um i was actually a director before, not in telly but in theater and radio before i came into tv um and i was working with new writers so i've always done a lot of script editing that mm-hmm. side of things um so yeah so for me it tends to be um very focused on working closely with the writer helping polish up the scripts uh, being a sort of creative overseer of the project. So um, you then get involved in casting, putting together a creative team who feel right for the project, um, being there on set every day, working very closely with the director, uh, again, being a sort of overview person. So when, mm. the, when the director is dealing with shot to shot, scene to scene, take after take, you know, what do I need to say to the actors? Where do I want to put the camera? Um, As a producer, you can take a little bit of a step back and think, are we telling the story the way that it needs to be told? Are we hitting all the jokes? Sort of being, in a way, the voice of the writer on set, even though the writer sometimes is on set. Yeah. I think, well, it's it's very different. I mean, the, the job that I do doesn't, really exist in the states uh it's such a specific thing in this country and it's because in the states and i think this is a good thing in the states Mm. the writer has more power so the writer is effectively the producer Mm. i mean it's where that term showrunner has come from that is usually the person who's created the show uh sometimes now it gets handed on to somebody else but but basically it's it's a writer in that position of creative power um Whereas in this country, just the whole system is so different that generally writers haven't come up through that writer's room process. So they haven't learned the things that American writers learn about production, about how, you know, what happens to the script once it's not a script anymore. Mm. Um, And so they don't generally have those skills to be able to communicate with uh, heads of creative heads of department communicate with the actors if you know sometimes occasionally you need to um not bypass the director but you know with the director work directly with the actors on if there's a particular problem um so yeah generally in this country writers and I feel bad saying this because I'm sure there's plenty of writers I've worked with who do have these skills but generally they don't tend to have those skills so I feel as a producer I'm sort of able to be the writer's voice in a way, and represent what should be happening from from the kind of creative point of view to all those different people. Great. And yeah. was producing something that was an ambition to do? Was there a certain amount of hustle involved in it? Or is it just something that kind of happened from the other things that you were doing? 
No, it's certainly not something that I always wanted to do because, like most people, I had no idea what a TV comedy producer did. It was, you know, it wasn't even a role I'd heard of. Right. Um, and as I mentioned, I started off in theatre, so I was directing in theatre, um, but also on the side doing it because, you know, like most of these directors, I wasn't actually making a living out of it <laughs> or really any living at all. Um, so uh, I was doing various other things. Um, I mean, like most people, I was temping, whatever, doing all yeah. sorts of jobs. But one of the things I was doing just to pay the bills at that time was uh, lots of script reading for theatre companies and for the BBC and that sort of thing. Um, and through that, um, the, well, the BBC got to know me as somebody who was quite good on scripts. Uh, and somewhere along the way, I found myself... Um, oh, well, I, I got a job at BBC Radio Drama as a director of new radio plays uh and then I, along the way I found myself doing a bit of effectively kind of work experience for a week uh as a placement within the BBC in TV comedy which I loved as a consumer I've always been a comedy fan um but I thought that the job of producer was sort of just being a, a money person and um an organizer um, which I think is what most people outside of the industry think it is. And obviously there is a bit of organisation involved. I'm not going to pretend, you know, that you can just waft about being yeah. creative. You know, you need to help the thing come together. But, but I didn't realise how much creative work was involved um, until I was in that comedy office and I saw producers doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I realised, oh, this is all the bits of directing that I like without the bits that I don't like <laughs> Oh, great. This is my ideal job. Um, because as a director, I always really love working with the the writer or writers on the script. I love casting. I, I love sort of putting the whole thing together creatively at that at that broader level. Um, but sometimes on a day-to-day basis, when the actors had finished running a scene and they all looked at me and said, you are you are the answer. Tell us how to make it better. I don't know. I need to think about it for a bit. (laughs) And I didn't like that responsibility of being that person who immediately has to have that, Mm. that vision ready. Uh, And as a producer, you can, you can be a bit more thoughtful about it and take a step back. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask you if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favorite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows the people are listening. Thank you. If you were to describe what you do then, Mm. would you use all of those words? I'm a writer and a producer. Yeah, I do. I've become increasingly comfortable with listing a few different things that I do. Okay. And I think... There's been, historically, there's been a tendency in this country to want to pigeonhole people into one yes. role. I think but it's I, the, sorry, is that, it's the, I've just thought it's the Alan Partridge business card, isn't it? After the yeah. speaker, radio presenter, used car enthusiast, you know, it's all those different <laughs> things. It's, yeah, and people sort of go, well, you don't really do any of these properly, do you? It's that figure, yeah. I guess. Yeah, there is a sort of cringe element to that long list of things that you say you can do. And we've all met people who have that long list who mm-hmm. can't do any of those things. You know, so <laughs> that's always the worry is that you come across as one of those people. But, um, but I, I do think that's changing, and I think um, there are more and more people who combine 
different things like performing with writer. I mean, writer performers is now, you know, in comedy, that's uh, most of the commissions for new shows are, are coming from writer performers. So yes. that's absolutely accepted. I think producer, producer, writer, performer is a slightly different. That, uh, that's my unique. Uh, <laughs> actually, no, I would say Robert Popper also fills that need. There are a few people who also would tick all of those boxes, producer, mm-hmm. writer, performer. Uh, Robert Popper probably more successfully than me. Um, Armando Inucci, uh, he's a producer and writer. Perhaps, um, perhaps more in that American showrunner kind of vein that you'd mentioned before. And, of course, Armando has has run shows in America, I guess, as well, hasn't he? So it's that. Yeah. It, yeah. But I, I suppose you need some element of um, having been established doing something a little bit before they give you the chance to do that and run a whole show, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, I think most people who combine performing of some sort with producing of some sort, and there aren't many of those people, but but most of those people who do that, I think the performing has come first mm. and they've become quite successful doing that. Uh, and they do have the skills to produce as well. They do have that sort of creative vision and organisational ability and all of those things as well. Um, so they, I mean, I think of someone like Sasha Baron Cohen, for mm. example, you know, who ends up producing his own projects and, and so he should too. Um, and Armando Anucci, people like that. But um, I've done it the other way around, which is a bit eccentric. <laughs> um, it's not that I had never performed at all before I took up stand-up in 2017. Um, I came to the world of creative work as a teenager through being a, a dancer. I was very seriously into ballet. And so that was my introduction to showbiz. I used to be a sort of child dancer in professional pantos and I was in an opera and you know that sort of thing. Um that was when I first saw somebody directing mm-hmm. uh live performance and thought, oh that's what a director does and got that idea. Um so it's not that I hadn't performed at all. It's not that I hadn't been on a stage and done showing off. Um <laughs> but I certainly hadn't done it for a very long time. Um so it was quite it was quite a weird thing when I, as someone who was quite established as a producer in TV, said, oh, I'm going to be a stand-up now. Um, people find that, found that quite weird when I said mm. I was going to do that. But it didn't take too long for me to prove that it wasn't just a, you know, I wasn't just having a breakdown. <laughs> you know, it was something that I was sort of seriously doing and I ended up doing an Edinburgh show and that, that felt like um, the kind of proof that, you know, okay, I'm, I'm a proper comedian. Mm. I wonder with that then, having worked with so many great comedy performers and writers as a producer, was that a useful um, spur to get on doing your own thing? Or was it a reason to not? Because you'd seen how good some of these other people were and how much hard work it took. It was a definite advantage. I'm not going to pretend. I mean, you know, you spend that long around some brilliant comic geniuses. It's going to rub off. You know, Mm -hmm. it just... It really helps. And I got great tips from people. I mean, I was lucky enough to be um, working with Roisin Connerty just mm. before I did my Edinburgh show. In fact, it was the last thing that I produced as a producer was the second series of her show, Game Face. Um, so in the sort of months before doing my show, I was in an edit every day with Roisin. And of course, she was fascinated by, she, she'd come to see a preview of my show very kindly. And she was fascinated by the whole process of, so I think nostalgically revisiting uh, what it's like to do your first Edinburgh show. 
she had a huge splash with her first Edinburgh show. She did really, really well straight off. Um, and so she was giving me great advice about leading up to that first hour-long show at the Fringe. Um, I had uh, Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse came to see one of my very first gigs mm. and you know, gave me some sort of tips on my jokes afterwards. You know? right, so I thought, okay. you, can't, you can't ask for this kind of help. This is, <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> Obviously, then I had to make sure that I did my own thing and developed my own voice and um, leave all of those um, those references behind because you have to be yourself as a comedian. But yeah. it was the definite advantage having worked with all those brilliant people for years before I started it. Great. I mentioned in some of those names then and to talk about some of the other shows you've worked on, Peep Show Series 5, I believe. Yes. Remind me what happened in Series 5. Was that? What... I, I often call it the Dobby Series. Okay. It was when Dobby was first introduced, which is how most people... In the story. Most people remember Series 5 from one scene in a stationary cupboard. Yes, very memorable. <laughs> there, are, there were many other great moments and great episodes in that series, but that <laughs> seems to be the most memorable scene for people. So, yeah, that's Series 5. And you worked on the Windsors as well, which has a line that keeps coming back to me a lot, um, where Megan says, I want to go back to America. And Harry says, okay, fine. Where is it? And that just sticks with me forever. Like, makes me laugh a lot. Where is it? Um, so you've worked with all those great people. Yeah. What are, the, what are the similarities between those people and what are the, the sort of differences? Do they all work in different ways in terms of writing and performing? Or is there a, a thing that you can say, that's what someone who really gets it does that's that's how it works no everyone's different I, I i couldn't sort of come up with an overall you know this is the one thing i've learned from everyone i've worked with i mean really if there's one thing i've learned from everyone i've worked with it, it is that there's no one way to do it mm. um there isn't a sort of secret that all those successful people have got that the rest of us need to learn um everyone does it their own their own way Great. Okay. And you'd mentioned that you're you're not producing at the moment then. So what is it that you're working on? You've mentioned the stand-up shows um, and some new material. Is that going to be the focus for the next foreseeable bit of time and the book? Uh, writing's my main focus at the moment. I mean, I'm still the, – the thing that I'm still doing that's sort of closest to the producing work is um, script editing, story editing, that sort of thing. So um, I'm sort of doing everything I used to do but the bit where I actually go on set and um, – go to the edit. Um, so that first stage of the process. So at the moment I'm working on um, the third series of Trying, which is a show on Apple TV. So I'm story producer and um, additional material writer on that. Um, and then as a writer on my, my own stuff, I've got a pilot which has been optioned by Genial Productions, which is a lovely production company, um, and they're pitching that out at the moment Great. um as i said i'm working on the the book uh yeah just oh i'm also writing a film at the moment oh, which is my first yeah. my first feature film script it's a post-apocalyptic comedy which is fun Great. I'm sure I'm not the only person writing post-apocalyptic comedy right now. Yeah, you know, write what you know, yeah. <laughs> what you're going through. So with those projects then, sort of the you know, your own projects in inverted commas, are you are you writing on your own for those? Because you'd mentioned that the the thing you liked about producing was the collaborative side of it. So I wonder, 
is there a difference? Do you prefer working on your own? Do you prefer having other people to bounce off? What's the and also added to that? Are you writing from home or are you going into writers' rooms for some of those script things that you're talking about? So on my own projects, um, it's it's just me um, as writer. So I don't have a co-writer, but I do love working with. I love having people to bounce things off, mm. and I think all writers. I think it's essential. Um, so, you know, you do that first draft in the own, your own world of your imagination and think, I hope this is good, but I've got no idea really. Um, and then certainly with my pilot that's been optioned by Genial Productions, as soon as it was with a production company and I was working with the people there and they were giving me notes. Um, and they also they brought on uh, Jeremy Dyson as a script editor, which is right. fantastic getting his view on it. And, and I love that process. And it's quite nice for me having been on the other side of that for years having been the person giving those creative notes to to get them from someone else so it's sort of I think I appreciate it all the more because I know the work that goes into reading a script and really thinking about what the writer's trying to achieve and how they can better achieve it and I really appreciate it when I get good creative notes from people so that sort of collaboration I I love I mean I have co-written I co-wrote a sitcom a few years ago um with a writer called Neil Walhurst who's very good um, and that was one of the winners of the Rockcliffe, um, the BAFTA Rockcliffe competition. So it was good enough to win a competition, <laughs> but um, and absolutely no disrespect to Neil, who's still a friend, and you know we we got on well writing that script. And in fact, we wrote another script as well after that, which we didn't do anything with. But um, it, I think we both just found it found it quite co-writing is so difficult, and when people find those partnerships that work you know they need to cling on to them for dear life because it's such a rare thing um and I think Neil and I you know we weren't really necessarily differing over is this line funnier than that line we were differing over um more fundamental things about about process you know whether we should be uh influenced and inspired by similar things that have come before or whether we should try and cast that off and do our own thing you know those kind of quite fundamental mm. questions and everyone has their own approach and so in the end that possibly wasn't the right fit as a as a writing partnership um but you know that's not to say that that it couldn't work with somebody else but at the moment i think i'm focused on writing things that are, that are just me but where i get that that creative help from mm. yeah Mm. and it's interesting you mentioned being on both sides of um bouncing back ideas and script editing and stuff there's a challenge in that on both sides isn't there when somebody doesn't love what you've written or when you don't love what somebody else has written what's your approach to that is there a way to sort of deliver that information that isn't incredibly hurtful or or do you just need to be honest with that stuff sometimes and what are some of the I don't need to name any names. What are the, the good and bad reactions you've had to some of your feedback and suggestions? Um, genuinely, it's been overwhelmingly positive mm. for, from writers that I've worked with. And that's something I'm really proud of because I, I do, I really value the writer. I think the writer is the most important. Of course, the writer is the most important person. Without them, the whole project wouldn't exist. But mm. I think people often don't recognise that or don't seem to recognise that the way they behave. So maybe just instinctively writers I've worked with sort of understand that I'm on their side. So that helps when I have to give them difficult feedback because they know that, you know, it's not about, it's not about being difficult. It's not about anyone's ego. 
Um, it's not about me trying to impose my own ideas onto um, their script. You know, I do that now with my own scripts. But when I was just script editing, um, I was very kind of focused on it being their baby and how can I help with it. Mm. Um, but it hasn't been, there was one, and I won't name names, but there was one uh, show creator who um, I think was, had been absolutely overloaded by the time I came on, to, on board the project quite late. It wasn't the first series of something. Uh, so they're very used to working with the people that they'd worked with on previous series. And they just, and I came in with my, with my notes straight away because that's, that's the value I bring to a project. Um, and, you know, I'd obviously misread the situation and they didn't, they just didn't want my creative notes, but there was a co-writer that was a co-written project. I'm trying not to say too much because I yeah, don't want to give yeah, away sure. which projects, are, but luckily I've worked on enough things where there are co-writers that it's, I'm yeah. not identifying anything, but the, in that case, the other writer did want my feedback. So it was quite an interesting situation where the first writer sent an email to me copying in the other writer. And I hadn't actually sent my notes at this point because I think that's a very important thing. I think you need to pre prepare the ground. You know, you don't just go, boom, here it is. You make sure somebody's in the right place and ready. And, you know, it's a difficult thing receiving creative feedback. Um, it's different once you get into the, a rhythm of work with someone, but certainly the first mm. time. Um, so I just said, you know, I've read the scripts. There's lots I love. I've got a few ideas of improvements. Um, let's have a chat. And then this message came back saying, I don't want your feedback. Uh -oh. um, very bold. <laughs> this is kind of my first week on the job. So I was like, okay. Um, but then I got a call from the other writer who'd seen that email saying, I want your feedback. <laughs> so... <laughs> so I just gave feedback to that one writer and they sort of fed it. I mean, you know, you get these politics sometimes in mm. these creative projects that that writer had to feed those notes to the other writer without saying they were from me. So, and, and some of those notes that I suggested, I, I saw those realized in the final mm. script. So, mm. you know, they were obviously thought to be the right thing to do, but just that particular writer didn't didn't want to hear it from me. And that can happen. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? Just the way that the politics falls into stuff. And like you mentioned, everybody's different. So an approach that works with one person beautifully might just not be the right thing with somebody else. And that's yeah. part of the gig, I suppose, isn't it? It's just working those those things out. When you're writing at home then on your, your own projects, what's a perfect creative day? What's the setup that means that you're comfortable and not having to worry about other stuff? Uh, I think a situation where I can force myself not to look at the internet mm. is important. Um, and I think how I do that is, it's very important to me to feel that I've gone to a particular place to work and it doesn't mm. have to be a traditional workplace. It can be a cafe or whatever, but I have to feel like, when I leave this place at the end of today or at the end of the morning, if I'm just doing a morning session or whatever, I need to come away with something. I almost feel like there's going to be somebody waiting outside the cafe going, so what have you done? Um, and for me, I mean, it differs between different people, but for, for me, it's quite useful to actually vary where I write because that sense of occasion is, is somehow preserved. If I'm like, well, I'm in this place that I've not written in before um, and I'm going to write here all week 
And at the end of this week, I need to have something to show for it. Yes. Um, I've even actually, a couple of weeks ago, I went on a writing retreat. I actually left London. It wasn't even a different cafe. I went to a different <laughs> town um, on um, an Arvon writing retreat. So the Arvon Foundation have these various buildings around the country where you could just book a room. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, it's sort of like being a student, you know, you've got your own little room with a desk and a chair and a bed and you go, right, I'm here to write. Um, so yeah, I did that to just to make a bit more progress on this film script that I'm writing. And I did, just, did that work? Was that a success? It did. It did. Um, because even though technically it's all, it's all about avoiding distractions yeah. or, it, but it's a sort of psychological process of forcing yourself not to be distracted by those things. So, um, technically, it was just as easy in that room in Shropshire, it was just as easy for me to pick up the phone and scroll on Twitter as it would be at home. But in practice, I didn't do it because I was just in this different environment where I thought, well, I'm, I'm here to work and I've got to come away at the end of the week with something to show for it. So mm, great. I just I keep burying it. And talking about distractions then, when you have a few different projects on the go, or maybe you don't do it like this, do you have a few different projects happening at the same time? And if so, how do you focus the time on what you need to work on? Or is it important just to be focusing on one thing? No, I think it's good to to go back and forth between projects if you've got the opportunity to do that. Um, so there was a period sort of late last year, early this year, when I was working on my sample chapter for the book. Mm. And rewrites for the pilot that's with Genial Productions. And I sort of did alternate days. And that was really nice because each time I came back to the other project, it was sort of exciting and different from yesterday, you know. <laughs> so I quite like it when I've got the opportunity to, to move between projects. I don't think if you're having to do that under a lot of time pressure or if you had sort of three or four projects on the go mm. at once, I think I'd find that harder but two projects on alternating days is perfect and is that easier if they're quite diverse things so i don't know if this would have been the case when you were producing on shows if you were still writing for your stand-up at the same time they're quite different whereas if you're doing two writing projects can they kind of occupy the same bit of your brain i don't know well in that case one of the projects was a was prose was a book and the other project was uh, a script so Mm. that helps um, also, one of them was a new thing. It was a first draft. And the other was rewrites where I was collaborating with someone. I think that really helps. Um, so, yeah, it depends. I mean, you asked if I would be writing while I was producing. Basically, no, there was never. T- when I was actually producing a show in production, there's no time. You know, your entire life is taken over by that project. There's no time to think about anything else. So, so no, I didn't. The, the times when I would write when I was still producing would be where I had a few weeks between projects where I was able to sort of hundred percent focus on writing. Mm. But I, yeah, you can't really do evenings and weekends when you're producing. It's too too, too much, much. Too much headspace. Yeah. Um, what would be your definition of success? in career terms or in the terms of an actual project, what makes a successful thing? I think when the people who like the thing you make really like it, I think that's important. Um, You know, you do want people to like your work. I'm I'm enough of a populist to to want that, of course. But I, I think it's not always about, the sheer numbers that, you know, television can be very obsessed with 
numbers and ratings. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's one metric. And obviously it's great if lots of people see what you make and lots of people like it. Um, but it's also great if the people who like it really like it. Um, and actually that's a sign that you've made a really interesting piece of work. If you've got some people who loathe it, but the people who love it really are really loyal to it. And I suppose with some of the shows that you've worked on as a producer, that that's very much the fact, isn't it? Like certainly Peep Show, I think this is true, has never been a massively successful, millions of people watching it as it's broadcast, but it has this amazing life, just this very dedicated and uh, fan base and I guess that's the same with a lot of comedy things isn't it and isn't isn't that great because there's a certain freedom in that that you can do interesting things without having to yeah I, I love working on those kind of things where if if someone loves it and they meet somebody else who loves it they feel like oh we're yeah. in a gang together you know? <laughs> they yeah. feel like they're in a secret club and sometimes it's not that so I think a lot of people show fans they're in a secret club and actually they don't realize that the secret's out now, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it's still got that feel of a cult show. And I think that's really nice. Um, and I think that's true of, you know, a lot of shows that I've worked on that you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, everyone knows that peep show is a cult show mm. in that sense that the people who love it are very, very loyal to it. There are other shows I've worked on that as a producer, I, I get to learn that they are cult shows that people might not realize. So the Windsor's, which might seem like a very sort of mainstream show in a way. It was, it had quite, um, I think when it, when the first series came out on Channel 4, it was the highest viewing figures of the first episode oh, that they'd wow. had for a comedy, um, a comedy launch for years. Um, <clears throat> you know, so in that sense, it seems like quite a mainstream show. But I do have that experience when I'm out and about and I meet people and they ask what I've worked on, particularly during those three years that I was working on. The Windsors, that would be the show that I would mention if people wanted to know what I what I worked on. And quite often people would say, oh, I love that show, as if I can't believe that <laughs> that you work on this little show that I think I've heard of and nobody else has. And I'm always telling my friends to watch it. And, you know, they talked about it like a cult show. They talked about it the way people talk about Peep Show. Um, so, yeah, that's really nice, actually. that's That makes me more proud than seeing you know, the ratings from last night were X million. Mm. The people that get it really get it. And we've yeah. we've impressed them with a particular episode. Brilliant. Izzy, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, if people wanting to keep up to date with what you're doing, what's the best way of doing that? Where can they find you? Uh, on social media, on Twitter, I'm Izzy Mant, I-double-Z-Y-M-A-N-T, uh, Instagram. Uh, on Facebook, I'm just... Uh, my sort of public page is Izzy Mant Polite Club, so it's very specific to my politeness thing. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm more a Twitterer than anything else. So yeah, people can follow me on Twitter, Izzy Mant. Thank you very much, Izzy. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye.